Welcome to the Brain Powell podcast. We're on a mission to improve the world through neuroscience. This is your host, Devin Rome, and today I'm with Dr. Sherry All. She's an expert in the field of neuropsychology. She's a neurorehabilitation psychologist, and she's the director of the Centers for Cognitive Wellness. Recently, she authored the excellent book, The Neuroscience of Memory. And I have to say, it's probably one of the best works on the neuroscience of memory I've read so far, both within the technical books and the non-technical books. And additionally, I've got to say, it's one of the best narrated audiobooks I've heard as well, both inside and outside the neurosciences and the general sciences. Uh, I'm not sure what her secret is, but uh, she's an excellent narrator. Uh, probably one of the best narrators I've heard on Audible uh, across any audiobook. So uh, Dr. Job, I mean, <laughs> Dr. All, great job on that. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, what an honor to hear you say that. I. Um... I mentioned I'm kind of a Brene Brownophile, and uh, she's I could listen to her narrate anything. And um, to you know, so so this is one of the highest compliments I think anybody could could give to me right now. So thank you so much. Yeah, yeah it's accurate. Again, there's no exaggeration there. That's well, very well uh, narrated. Okay, so do you think that covers your background pretty well? Yeah, sounds great to me. All right, good. All right, so we'll go ahead and get to the into the thick of it. So uh, first, let's talk about your background now. Uh, why psychology? Was that always something you were interested in from a young age or? Yeah, um, I think, you know, I think I did follow the path that uh, a lot of psychologists end up finding themselves to be in, you know, that that was kind of my family role growing up, uh, being a confidant and, uh, you know, sort of being there as like, you know, the, the person that everybody kind of told their their secrets to and was sort of the, the shoulder to cry on. And, and so, you know, I would say probably about ninth or 10th grade, I became really, really interested in psychology. And I, you know, anytime I could write a report on like some psychological dysfunction, that that's the topic that I would pick and just kind of dig into it really deeply. And so, um, so yeah, so really, really fascinated in that. Didn't really know what direction I wanted to go into until after I had finished my bachelor's degree. I considered social work, um, but I uh, ended up working at an assisted living home right out of college and just became really fascinated by brain impairments, um, meeting a lot of people with dementia, reading a lot of Oliver Sacks books, um, just really kind of doing a deep dive on uh, all the amazing things that can happen. I think we really kind of take our brains for granted. And um, when you see that there's like a glitch because there's been damage in a, in a particular part of the brain, that just really fascinates me a lot. So um, yeah, so that's, so I, I love what I do. It's, it's been a really great path for me. I see, very interesting. All right, now, Dr. All, uh, can you talk about how you got into memory? Like uh, what made you want to start studying that? Yeah, I, you know, like I said, I, my, this first job out of college was kind of being around a bunch of people with uh, cognitive declines, and I found it just really fascinating in, and, you know, kind of during that same period of time, you know, kind of reading all of these different books by Oliver Sacks and, and really starting to learn that there's, you know, different memory systems inside the brain and that there, are, you know, you could line up about four people with memory problems and each of them would have a different characterization of their memory problems. So they may have trouble remembering appointments or, um, you know, may repeat themselves, but for, you know, 
vastly different reasons, which would also, you know, really play a lot into how we would approach their care. And so I, I was really lucky to, you know, kind of work in this environment and uh, be mentored by a gerontologist who would just kind of explain to me, you know, like this woman has Alzheimer's disease and, and this is, you know, kind of some of the problems that she's having versus this other woman has vascular dementia and, and kind of how, how those things kind of look differently from each other. And, and so I'm kind of a details nerd. And, and so, uh, you know, that really just kind of flipped the switch for me where I needed to, needed to kind of go in and learn all the details about these and learn, learn the neuro anatomy and kind of what's happening in, inside the brain to kind of produce these different types of behaviors and abilities. And then I just love telling people what I know. And, and so it's just been really fun to like have the opportunity to make a career out of getting to explain to people, you know, how, how memory works and, you know, when it goes wrong and, and ways to kind of work around that. I see. Very interesting. Now, did you always have a good memory or are you like a so-so average in memory or would you say you would attribute some of your memory skills to training and knowing what you're doing? Uh, maybe. I, I think it's such an interesting question for you to ask. Nobody's really even asked me that before. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I'm not a memory savant, you know, we, you know, I think, and I think that's kind of what people think of when they talk about people having a good memory, you know, think about people with like photographic memories, or you can just hear something one time and remember it forever. Uh, I do not have that level of memory ability by, by any means. Um, but, but I would say that I probably have a better than average memory. Um, and I, and I would really attribute it to strategies and, you know, just kind of natural strategies that, that I had developed as a student, you know, I'm a good note taker. Um, and, and I noticed, you know, it, it's, it's funny that as I learned memory strategies, I was able to kind of evaluate my own behavior kind of in hindsight. Right. And so the strategies that we te teach people in memory enhancement programs are not something that we invented. They're, they're skills and traits and behaviors that people with good memory function have kind of implemented or developed organically. And, um, and so as I was kind of learning some of these strategies like writing things down or quizzing myself, um, I realized that that's kind of how I approached, you know, a lot of like my college courses and, and things like that. So, so I was a pretty good student and I had some pretty good study skills and then, and then probably a decent memory um, to be able to kind of hold on to things. But, um, but it's not like each of us has to kind of reinvent the wheel and we can learn from each other, right? So we can learn the strategies that people with really strong memories use in order to improve any of our memory functions. And, and so it's, it's kind of neat. It's, I think of it as sort of like a social sharing of, of mm. memory strategies of that kind of pass on from person to person. Of course, that makes sense. That reminds me of one of my uh, favorite classes at OSU. This was memory and cognition. And it was interesting to learn, and this was in the textbook, that uh, I guess some of the students that they studied that had very good memories, uh, they weren't necessarily just naturally smarter. A lot of them just used <laughs> different strategies 
Yeah. Sometimes people thought of the strategies themselves or just their experience, or they were, again, they were just using different strategies uh, that were just more effective and efficient. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even the people who participate in these memory championships, like oh, yeah. the, the, you know, US memory championship, um, there are people who learn and practice a particular skill. They're not really born that way. Uh, there's a great book that came out about 10 years ago called Moonwalking with Einstein where the author, who's a journalist, uh, just kind of followed around Tony Buzan, who's one of these memory gurus, and, um, and some of his protégés who, who kind of participate in these memory competitions, they just taught him their skill and he practiced it and he went on to win the US memory championship. Uh, sorry if that's a spoiler yes. for the book, but, but it was just, you know, some average, you know, journalist learned the strategy, practiced it, and then, uh, you know, was able to memorize really ridiculous amounts of information. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember watching that TED talk a while ago when he was just like, oh yeah, I never really had a good memory before, but then I started learning these strategies and then, oh yeah, I won the competition. <laughs> yeah. It Right. So, so all of us are capable of improving our memories, you know, but it does take, you know, effort and practice. And, you know, kind of after I read that book, I was kind of like, well, but I don't know if I really want to do all that. Like, I don't really yeah. plan on going and going to memory competitions, right? Um, yeah. So, but we all, you know, so we invest as much as we need to in order to help with our own personal lives. Like what are, what are your personal goals that, that you want to try to improve? Yes. Now that transitions well, and we talked about it a little bit. So that transitions well to the next question. Uh, so remember towards the beginning of the book, you talk about uh, practicing memory. Can you talk about some of the, uh, the logic behind that? Like why, why practice one's memory? Right, well, because any of these memory strategies are behaviors and it's, foolhardy to think that we're going to acquire some new behavior without practicing it, right? Oh, over yeah. and over. So, so you've got to take some of these behaviors and turn them into habits. And, and so, so it requires practice. So, you know, so let's say your strategy is to take better notes, you know, then you're going to have to practice that over and over in order to kind of, you know, and use it, you know, so then the one time that you don't take notes means that you're not going to have had the opportunity to kind of write that information down and it won't be there right so so over time some of these you know behaviors may become automatic and then you have to just intentionally practice them maybe less often but all habits require maintenance and mm -hmm. so so you may just you know it may become secondhand, but then something happens in your life where you kind of fall out of practice with it. And then maybe you need to be a little more intentional about kind of putting it back in. Um, I think we've all, you know, kind of known this with like our calendars or keeping up with our emails, you know, those, those require habits and motivation and focus and follow through. And, you know, you're, you're probably pretty good at slapping things on your calendar and checking it, but then you go on a week's vacation oh, yeah. and it takes a little while to get back into the yeah. habit. Right. So, yeah, so I think it all just kind of takes some effort, practice, intentionality, and, and follow through. Yeah, I like that. I think that's a very useful way to think about it. I like what you said, that uh, the habits require maintenance and uh, developing this skill. I mean, I guess to get any skill, like I've got a violin back there or to learn a language, it's all just like memory, developing memory. It's all practice. The more you do it, uh, the better you'll get at it in the long run. I see. That's very, it's a very helpful way to think about it. 
Now, another thing we talk about early in the book is the cognitive reserve. And I found that concept to be, in the way that you uh, packaged it, I just found that to be extremely uh, insightful and interesting. Can you talk about what exactly is the cognitive reserve? Yeah, so uh, so it's not a term that I came up with. It's, it's a scientific term to really describe a, a theory that was born out of evidence that we were seeing kind of at the end of the last century, like through the 1980s and 90s, we were noticing that there's not really a one-to-one relationship between um, what a person's brain looks like necessarily and how it functions. And so in the world of dementia, we were seeing that people were growing, they could have grown large amounts of these Alzheimer's plaques in their brains, but still have a whole lot of cognitive function compared to somebody who maybe didn't have as many plaques or maybe had the same amount. Um, We were seeing people get head injuries and make amazing recoveries from from a really severe head injury, whereas another person might have a really pretty minor injury and and like lose a lot of function. The same with stroke. And and so what um, Yakov Stern, who's the psychologist who kind of wrote some of these um, synthesis papers, really kind of put together was that he laid out the evidence that the the bad thing that's happening to your brain actually doesn't seem to predict how far you're actually going to decline as much as how much brain you have left over. And and so what really seems to be the biggest predictor of who has uh, pretty good outcomes after something bad happens to your brain really depends on this uh, cognitive reserve, which there are some ways that we can measure it. on people who've died or, or like in, a, in an MRI. So, so they measure it, you know, how heavy is your brain, how many cells kind of per uh, square millimeter uh, or kind of within the tissue, kind of what is this, the kind of synaptic density. Um, they might, might be able to do an M- MRI of this and, and kind of get an overall volume of your brain. So there's just different ways of kind of measuring brain reserve, um, but you can't go out and get a, a brain, like a cognitive reserve score yet. We're, we're not quite there. But, but what we noticed is that people, when they do have more brain cells and skills left over, are better able to kind of withstand the functional declines that might come with dementia, brain injury, stroke, um, that sort of thing. And so each of us has a cognitive reserve. I call it your brain's 401k account. Uh, don't attribute that term to, to Dr. Stern. Uh, he, he likes Wonders. cognitive reserve, but, uh, but, I, but I like to call it your brain's 401k account because it, it's relatable. It is quite literally like your brain's retirement account. And, and now that we've, you know, been studying neuroplasticity for over 20 years, we are, there's a lot of good evidence to suggest that the way we live our lives results in us either actively investing in our brain 401k or deducting from. So, so there are a lot of lifestyle factors that we know can kind of whittle away at your brain 401k. And then there are other behaviors that you can engage in that will actually help you beef up or 
or in, expand your brain 401k really across the entire lifespan. So, you know, we used to think that you had all the brains you were ever going to have when you were 20 and it was all kind of downhill from there, but adults are actually growing their brains. Um, so you can, you can actively invest in your brain 401k and cross your entire lifespan. And then what the result of that can be is that if you do have some underlying pathology of something like Alzheimer's disease happening, you won't show symptoms of that until later on in your life, that you can have more years of independence and quality of life and, you know, higher levels of functioning. Maybe you can, you know, stay uh, employed longer and, um, and have just kind of a lot of, uh, there are a lot of benefits to kind of pushing off the date of diagnosis for, for, for dementia. Yes, that makes sense. Remember watching, I think it's Dr. Wendy Suzuki's TED Talk, and then she's, I think she had a book come out on this recently. But if I recall correctly, she was saying that they're even finding BDNF uh, growth, I mean, uh, brain cell growth, uh, neurogenesis in people as old as like in their 70s and 80s, which I thought was crazy. Yeah, right. Yeah. One of the early studies that identified that adults could grow new brain cells some of the people who had donated their brain tissue for this study had been well into their 80s. Uh, we, we figured this out by looking at people who had survived cancer through radiation treatment. It allowed the scientists uh, to be able to apply a radioactive dye that would mm. only stick to brain cells that had been born after the radiation treatment. And, and some of the people, even in that early study, were well into their 80s when they had the radiation treatment. So, so we seem to be growing new brain cells kind of at every phase of life. Um, yeah, that brain-derived neurotrophin factor is one of you know, several uh, nerve growth factors that our bodies produce to kind of help with some of that um, neuron cell growth process. It helps baby brain cells grow up to be new neurons. It helps the neurons that you've had your whole life make new connections. And, um, and there's, you know, exercise is probably the, has the best evidence for producing more BDNF in your brain. Um, there's maybe some really preliminary science that certain, uh, nutrients can help with BDNF production, um, but the, the science for exercise and increasing BDNF production is really strong. And, and so it seems like exercise is probably one of the best things you can do for your brain and, and help you actively invest in, in your brain 401k across your whole life. Oh, yes. Yeah, I've been reading about that for a while. Now, fr from maybe a neurobiological perspective, why do you think that if you have any thoughts on this, uh, why do you think that exercise helps stimulate BDNF and neurogenesis? Well, I can't tell you why <laughs> um, yeah. necessarily. Uh, it's probably secondary to increased blood flow to the brain. Mm. Um, but, but I do know a lot of the how, yes. <laughs> right? And, and so the evidence that we have, which is, which is good evidence, it's experimental evidence. The good thing about exercise is that we can do experiments on it. It's a little harder to do experiments on other lifestyle factors, like how many friends you have mm. or, you know, uh, other types of interventions. Um, but, but for physical activity, we've been doing experiments on this, which gives us a good sense of cause and effect, right? And so we know that when people increase their physical activity, they grow new neurons in and around their hippocampus. 
and they produce higher levels of these nerve growth factors. And, and so what that does is that it can help you kind of have, you know, a few extra neurons in your brain that you didn't have there before. And, and like I just mentioned, those nerve growth factors help with uh, a lot of the connectivity uh, among the neurons. And so, so I think it's, all of us get excited about exercise because it's just been the one lifestyle factor that's produced the best science to date, right? Yes. Um, other things may come along as we get better at like at, at experimenting with them. Um, like sleep is making a big, um, a big resurgence in oh, yeah. surge in, in evidence that, you know, sleep, sleep may be as good as exercise. And I think for each of us, it's really, what are, what are our strengths? And then where are the places that we can improve? You know, each of us is going to have like a different brain health uh, strategy. I know people who love exercising, they never miss a day. It's already part of their lifestyle. Right. And, um, you know, but so, but they may have a little deficit on intellectual stimulation. Maybe they need to read more books or, or something like that. Um, you know, I'm kind of in the opposite direction of a very intellectually stimulating life. Um, but where I need a little support and a little kick in the pants is to, you know, move my body a little bit more. Um, so, so anyway, so yeah, I think hopefully that answers your oh, yeah. question. Yeah, I hear you. That makes sense because uh, what you said about people maybe having deficits in some areas. Uh, back when I was exercising the most, I mean, I would I would wake up at the same time. I know you should wake up at the same time, no matter, you know, no matter what, but I would, I would go to bed late, wake up at the same time, no matter what, and always go to the gym at the same time. But then I would be going to the gym on four, three to five hours of sleep. And not only would the exercise not be as good, but also I was tired the whole day. So right. it seemed to me that probably the exercise benefits were being somewhat nullified by the lack of sleep. That's right. It's all a balance, right? Like, so in, in the book, actually, one of the first assessments in the book is for you to kind of basically get a snapshot of your brain 401k portfolio. Mm. And, you know, so if sleep is suffering at, you know, at the expense of exercise, then, um, you know, then that may be something to try to balance out there. Yeah, because we know that, you know, people who have fewer than six hours of sleep on average uh, have higher risk of stroke, have higher risk of Alzheimer's disease. We, we, and we're starting to learn a little bit more of the why and the how for that. Um, but deep sleep seems to be a period of time where your brain actually may flush out some of those amyloid plaques that cause Alzheimer's disease. And so, so each of us kind of has our own, our own target. That's what you need to do. Like a little self-assessment, you know, what is my overall portfolio and then where do I need to try to maybe beef up some of my investments? Oh yeah. And I do want to, I do want to highlight that part. You should really do that self-assessment because if you don't know where you are, it's going to be hard to determine how you're going to get to where you want to go. So I highly recommend one, getting the book and two, doing those self-assessment exercises so that you can make a plan to go from A to B, uh, from where you are now to where you want to be. Yeah. Okay, so this transitions well to the uh, seven skills. So within the book, Dr. All has uh, seven main skills uh, to consider when it comes to uh, improving your memory. Uh, now, for the sake of time, we're, gonna, we're not going to cover every single skill, also because, again, I highly recommend getting the book. Uh, so we just covered movement and exercise. Now let's talk about uh, stress and sleep. 
I mean, stress and memory. So what should I know about stress when it comes to my memory and my cognitive reserve? Yeah, so so two things. Uh, I'll get to cognitive reserve here in a second, but the one thing I wanna say is that uh, for a lot of these brain 401k investment strategies, they actually pay what I call dividends. <laughs> meaning that you don't just get the positive benefits later in life. You, you actually have a lot of immediate benefits. And, and so physical activity is actually linked to better memory performance. And so you can actually learn things better when, when you're physically active too. We've got some cool experiments on that where we give people a memory test and some people just sit around for a half an hour and some people exercise. And the ones who've been active during that period of time um, actually do better on, on the memory test. Um, so the same for stress. Stress affects us in two ways. Number one, stress can imp impair your memory function in the short run, kind of in the here and now. So, um, so if you're stressed, your, your prefrontal cortex actually doesn't get enough blood flow in order for you to be able to focus, to be creative, to come up with, um, different solutions for things. I, I'm sure you've probably noticed this, like you ever walk away from an argument and then you kind of come up with sort of the best comeback ever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're like, why did I think of that? Well, it's because your, your prefrontal cortex has been hijacked by the emotional part in your brain. We call it limbic hijacking. Um, so, so stress impairs memory in the here and now, but also in the long run. And, and we think the main culprit here is in addition to all of those kind of secondary things related to stress, like depression and sleep interruption and, and those sorts of things. Um, we, what we think the main culprit is, is probably this stress hormone cortisol with, because we know that cortisol is toxic to brain cells it oh no <laughs> i know right um it's okay in small doses you can't you don't you can't get rid of all your stress uh, but we need to have sort of a nice healthy balance and not be bathing our neurons in cortisol kind of 24 7 which unfortunately humans kind of have a tendency to do um because we have the ability to ruminate and worry and you know those sorts of things um but so cortisol kills off the brain cells you have. People who have Cushing's disease, which is a medical overproduction of, of cortisol, uh, we see that their brains shrink. They're smaller than, than other people's brains. Uh, we see brain shrinkage and PTSD and depression. Um, and then it also does the opposite of what exercise does. Exercise helps you uh, have birth of new neurons, this neurogenesis process. Cortisol does the opposite. It inhibits neurogenesis. It keeps you from growing new neurons. So, uh, so, so the goal is really to try to like create some sort of a healthy balance between kind of that fight or flight state where you're kind of pumping out a lot of cortisol, having a balance with periods of going back to the opposite of that, which, you know, sometimes we call it rest and digest. Um, you might, you know, you do that through relaxation strategies, uh, but Stephen Porges is a psychiatrist who's uh, writing a lot about uh, interpersonal neurobiology and stress, and he calls the, the rest and digest state, he calls it the social engagement system, because there's actually a lot of social ways to kind of turn on that part of your nervous system, which is going to help protect your brain <laughs> from um, all that really toxic cortisol. Yes, I see. 
Now, the other one of the other things that I liked, I don't know if this was a one of your words again, uh, but I loved the word uh, limbic hijacking. Uh, I think another one that I liked, this was by Dr. Alan Watts. He calls them a, a DIY lobotomy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now, I can't take me... credit for limbic hijacking. You, but, I, I love DIY. I love yeah. lobotomy. Yeah. Now, do you have any uh, thoughts on, like, let's say I, I feel that one is starting or that I'm in the middle of one. How can somebody break out of those? Yeah, I would say the fastest way for me is through my breath. So, um, you know, really practiced and integrated the, the behavior of stopping and just taking a slow breath. Um, so if you, if you breathe in and, and you don't have to take a deep breath because you don't want to hyperventilate, um, but, but if you just kind of slow down the exhalation, like, Mm -hmm. then, then that activates that rest and digest system. It's the parasympathetic part of your nervous system. And so, so one quick little breath like that will um, lower my heart rate. It brings back my blood pressure, you know, at least allows my brain the opportunity to kind of turn off the limbic hijacking and, and maybe I can get a little bit of prefrontal uh, function back. I also like to take breaks you know, and say like, okay, maybe we can pause this conversation for a little bit so I can just kind of think about it and kind of come back to it. Um, other ways are, you know, a lot of grounding interventions that we teach as psychologists to kind of, you know, help orient you kind of back to reality that, you know, you might think about your feet being on the floor, your, your butt being in the seat of your chair, kind of being supported. Um, you might uh, think about, uh, maybe holding an orange in your hand or kind of naming all the different things that you see sort of in your environment. Um, but, but I think, you know, just saying like, Hey, can I have a minute? <laughs> right? Like that's, that's a, that's a really good start. Um, sometimes we're so hijacked though, that we don't know we're hijacked. Right. Oh, yeah. and then we gotta keep going. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, Oh, wait, that, where am I? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Ellen Langer, who's a mindfulness professor at Harvard, has a really great quote where she says, you know, when you're not there, you're not there to know that you're not there. Yep. <laughs> and, and so sometimes, you know, I don't know, maybe we need allies to kind of say, hey, you, you, you seem kind of hijacked or let's take a break. And, yeah, I like that. You said her name is Dr. Ellen Langer. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to look into some of her work as well. Yeah, she's an incredible research psychologist uh, who's been on the faculty there in the Department of Psychology the longest of, of all the professors. She says she's not the oldest faculty. Uh, I see. <laughs> They're the longest. The most experienced. Yes. <laughs> I see. Okay, now let's transition to uh, sleep. I also love this uh, section of the book as well. Now, can you talk about uh, what are some of the main things we should know about sleep and our memory? Yeah, so just like with stress and with physical activity, there's sort of some immediate benefits, those dividends, and then there are also those long-term effects uh, for, for your brain 401k investment. And you know, I already mentioned a couple of the, the longer-term impacts that sleep probably seems to be a state where our brains are doing a lot of cleanup. And like when we're in deep sleep, the glial cells that kind of 
are around your neurons, they actually shrink by probably about 20%. And that allows the spinal fluid to flush out toxins. And, um, and so, so getting enough sleep is important to, to be able to kind of allow that process to happen. Um, the other thing is that uh, sleep and anxiety are really highly intertwined. So if you're not getting enough REM sleep later in the night, then we know that you actually are going to have a lot more limbic hijacking. It makes the amygdala, which is kind of the, the beginning of that limbic hijacking part of the brain, um, it makes it more sensitive. And so it's more likely to kind of have a big reaction to, to something happening to you. Um, and then in the short run, sleep is bad for your cognition or lack of sleep, I guess, lack of sleep. You know, if you're not sleeping long enough or well enough, uh, because it's not just how much you sleep, what it also matters, the quality of sleep. So if you have, if you snore a lot and you have sleep apnea, then you're waking up so many times during the night that you're not getting all those good restorative sleep cycles that, that your that your brain really needs. And so when people haven't slept enough, their processing speed and attention scores are really kind of on par with either being a little drunk or high on pot. And so, you know, it, it, you can kind of understand why you might have some day-to-day -day glitches where you can't pay attention to things, things kind of pop out of your mind uh, faster than, than you would expect, um, you know, similar to, to being a little drunk. I see. Interesting. Uh, you can hear the, uh, can you hear that lawnmower over there? Only when you're speaking. Okay. Okay. Let's see. All right. Let's go in. Can you hear it now? Yeah. Oh, geez. Oh, well, I will keep moving along. Uh, one of the other very, oh my gosh, this really caught my eye. Well, my ears, I listened to it. <laughs> uh, this really caught my ears in the uh, the book. Uh, you mentioned, and you talked about uh, antihistamines. Uh, I've been very guilty of this before, even uh, recently until I learned about this in this part of the book. Now, uh, antihistamines like z and Benadryl, uh, what does that do to our, our memory and our sleep, which we know about that? Yeah. So I didn't know about this either. So, so don't be hard on yourself. I remember in graduate school when I uh, was studying for my comprehensive exams, I would take a Benadryl every night to fall asleep to make sure I had enough sleep. Um, but antihistamines have a quality to them that make them what we would call anticholinergic. And uh, you, you have to stick with me on the, on the science on this. Uh, the, the neurotransmitter acetylcholine is your memory neurotransmitter. It's the chemical in your brain that the memory part of your brain, the hippocampus uses to help you form new memories. It plays a, an essential role in learning new information, remembering different events that happen in your life. And so actually some of the memory medications that we give to people with Alzheimer's disease those are meant to actually boost acetylcholine in your brain. Antihistamines that make you drowsy, so the Benadryls, the z the you know, Tylenol, PM, all of those medications are actually lowering the amount of acetylcholine in your brain. So they're kind of doing the opposite of these memory medications like Aricept. And, and so it means that you just have less 
juice to kind of run your, your memory centers in your brain. And so, so there's a trade-off in the short run that people tend to wake up kind of foggy and it's a little harder to concentrate and learn new things. Um, maybe, maybe not enough to really kind of show up on our cognitive tests, but, but enough qualitatively. But, but then the other thing is that we've noticed that it actually is a dementia risk factor, particularly for older women who are already starting to show some declines. And, and so that's actually a treatment target for if we've, if we've diagnosed a woman with what we call mild cognitive impairment, which is kind of sort of maybe the earlier stages of dementia, um, we work really hard to get her off of those uh, sleep medications. And so that's about the extent of what we know about the risk. Um, but I think it's enough for me personally to try to not use those. I, it doesn't mean I'm not going to pop a Benadryl every now and then if I have, you know, if I have a cold and I need to make sure I get a really good night's sleep, but it's not my go-to for, for kind of making sure I sleep through the night. Um, because oh, yeah. yes. And it's, I mean, it's kind of, it's a known risk factor, but we think it's safe, right? Cause you can just buy it off the shelf. <laughs> so yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I, I didn't have a bad habit of it, but yeah, I would would use one every now and then, sometimes more than twice a week if it was a, a stressful week. And right. I mean, after after that, I was like, oh, maybe you should try some other things because I want to I want to keep this brain <laughs> for as yeah. long as possible. But I think there is some good news for people that uh, have allergies. So I think you you said in the book that it's the the non drowsy ones. They're they're not anticholinergic, right? Right. So, well, the, they're still anticholinergic. They just can't get into your brain. Mm. So, so the non-drowsy antihistamines, so if, yes, if you're an allergy sufferer, you do not have to suffer <laughs> through allergy season. Um, you can safely take non-drowsy antihistamines. The, the difference between them, and this is actually the reason why they don't make you drowsy, is because they can't cross the blood-brain barrier, so they don't get into your brain. They're, they're blocking histamines in your nose and throughout your body, but not getting into the brain. And, and so that, that's beneficial because then you can kind of keep those normal levels of acetylcholine in your brain. Taking I see. Very good. That's good news for people with bad allergies. Right. All right. Now let's transition to the diet and memory. Now I know we're, we're still in the early stages, I think, when it comes to diet and how it affects our brain. Uh, but what we what do we know now about when it comes to healthy food, healthy eating, and how one can optimize their diet, so to speak, for their memory? Yeah, you know, I think it's, this is a tough area because it's, you know, very poorly regulated what people can say about nutrients and their impact, right? Like all the supplements are regulated by the USDA, the, the meat people, not the FDA, right? So somebody can kind of slap together a supplement and be like, this is great for your brain when they don't actually have to like prove any of that science. Um, and so, so you get a lot of uh, potentially false information kind of in this, in this territory, but, but there definitely is a link between the food that we consume and really kind of our longer term risk for dementia. So some of the best science for this is out of Rush University. They have a memory and aging research program that's been going on for many, many years. And um, the best way we study this is to have people just tell us, you know, 
what kinds of foods that you eat. I actually kind of recreated a, a little bit of a food frequency checklist in the book that, um, and so kind of on these group level studies, when people eat at least one serving of fish, they have a lot of uh, fruit, fresh fruits and vegetables, they replace butter with olive oil, they avoid fried foods, they limit their desserts, that those are the people who are really having some of the best resistance to dementia later on in life. They have the best cognitive output because, you know, our brains are very vulnerable to our entire physical system. So if you have high blood pressure that puts stress on your brain and eats away at your brain 401k throughout your life, if you have heart disease, if you have diabetes, all of these um, chronic health conditions that are also, um, you know, given higher risk based off of our nutrition and are also managed through diet, um, that, that those are also can have secondary impacts on your brain. So those are, those are cognition risk factors in and of themselves. And so, you know, I think we just need to try to follow as best we can, what the cardiologists have been telling us for a really long time, you know, limit saturated fats, uh, try to maintain a healthy glycemic level you know, uh, don't eat a whole row of Oreos <laughs> um, every night, you know, avoid blood sugar spikes, um, antioxidants that come from fresh fruits and vegetables are really good for your brain cells, omega threes that come from fish and walnuts and, and those sorts of things um, are also good for your brain cells. They're also good for heart health. So, um, so I would just really say, you know, a heart healthy diet is a brain healthy diet. And, um, and, and so, you know, I don't, it, it, diet's tough, right? Like, am I going to go on a diet? Am I going to like follow kind of like a really regimented, um, food program? Some people might really choose to do that. Uh, so there's a, a group of neurologists out of Loma Linda, California, who really advocate for a kind of a vegan diet, a plant-based diet. Um, you know, on the other coast, we've got uh, folks at Johns Hopkins that are looking at um, kind of a modified Atkins diet. There's the mind diet, the dash diet, the mad diet. Uh, and so I mean, what these diets kind of all have in common is that they tend to be lower in saturated fats. They're high in a lot of nutrients. They're low glycemic. Um, and uh, and that, you know, that's, kinda, that's basically it. Yeah, so it kind of sounds like what we've been told uh, for years, if not decades, you are what you eat. So maybe if you're eating junk, uh, you might get some junk in your brain. <laughs> you're going to get some junk in your brain. <laughs> yeah. I see. Now that makes sense. Now this covers the, uh, the strategies pretty well. Now, one thing I'm curious about, are there any memory myths, like common uh, myths or fallacies that we should be aware of when it comes to uh, having strong memories or bad memories? Yeah, I mean, I think the one that I hear most often is that people are just really hard on themselves about their memory. Uh, you know, if I could do one service to the world, it would be to actually try to get people to stop complaining so much about their memory. Um, I, I, I'm a, I'm, I work in this field and so invariably I meet somebody at a party and they say, what do you do? And they're like, oh, I have the worst memory. Uh, they don't. Uh, I, I think that we just have ridiculously high expectations for what we think our memories should be able to do. 
And um, I think that we really have a tendency to kind of idealize some of these memory savants, you know, people who say they have a photographic memory, we all think we should be like them. And um, I, I don't think we, I think we need more self-compassion around our memory. I, I really like Kristen Neff's work on self-compassion. One of the things she talks about in her book by that same title is that we have to admit when we're average at stuff because we all kind of expect ourselves to be above average at everything. And that's not possible. That would literally break math. It, like oh, yeah. averages are mathematical, right? <laughs> like somebody has to be at the mean, like most people have to be at the mean. And, and so, you know, if you have an average memory, then, you know, that's, that's great. That's actually really good. Um, and so, so, so stopping some of the self-criticism and, and kind of expecting ourselves to, to remember everything, or you have like one memory glitch, that doesn't mean that something terrible is happening to your brain. We forget all the time. It's actually how we stay sane. <laughs> if, if we were to remember every piece of information that it kind of comes at us, uh, we, we would literally go insane. Oh, yeah. so, so we got to be able to like kind of drop some of that stuff. Um, another myth that I like to talk about too, if you'll, if you'll let me, um, yeah, go ahead. Is, yeah, is, um, multitasking is a myth and, um, and I think it's worth mentioning at this point that you can only expect to remember things that you pay attention to. Attention is the gatekeeper to your memory. You cannot possibly remember something that you didn't notice in the first place. That's just not possible. And multitasking gets in the way of your attention. We really can't pay attention to two things at the same time. When we are doing things that feel like multitasking, what we're really doing is kind of shifting rapidly between those two tasks. And, and performance drops off by about a full standard deviation of performance. Um, they've done some really cool experiments in college students that, that it's, you know, how much their attention declines is also similar to being high on pot and by just, just by doing two different things. And, and so I'm not saying you don't have to, you know, never multitask. Like sometimes I multitask for motivation just to kind of keep myself on target or something like that, but just be aware of the potential pitfalls for that. Uh, some people really think that they can be engaged in a conversation while scrolling through the news. And that's a myth. You're going to miss important things that people say to you uh, as part of that conversation. Oh, yeah. You know, two things come to mind uh, on the item about being compassionate and not expecting yourself to remember everything. Uh, that reminds me of a, uh, an episode of Sherlock, and it's also appeared in the Sherlock Holmes books. So uh, Watson, kind of his, uh, his companion, his sidekick, uh, he was talking to Sherlock and he was like, how could you not know that? And, and Watson was like, it's the solar system. He's like, Sherlock was like, well, well I don't care. I've only got, it's a myth that you've got like a finite capacity, if I understand correctly, but he's like, oh, well, I've only got so much space in my brain. I don't oh. need to know all this stuff. So I don't care if the sun, if the earth revolves around the sun, it can revolve around a, te a teddy bear for all I care. I can only remember so many things. So I'm not going to expect myself to remember everything. So the lesson here is if Sherlock doesn't expect you to remember everything, then maybe you shouldn't either. There you go. I like that a lot. <laughs> and then on the, uh, the item about uh, multitasking, I think I've experienced uh, something like this before. Uh, so my partner and I, we like to, uh, we take salsa dance lessons. 
And uh, one thing we do at the uh, place where we go for lessons is uh, they have you uh, dance with people you haven't danced with before. Like everybody dances, dances with each other in order to, let's uh, say you get good basically by uh, dancing with other people who are at, below or above your skill level. Yeah. But I always introduce myself to people and they introduce uh, themselves to me. So I, I learn their name. But at the same time, I'm trying to also remember how to do the salsa move and also do the salsa move and remember their name. So about 40 to 50% of the time, I just, I just forget their name. Well, they all, everybody forgets everybody's name because they're doing so many things. Yes. <laughs> that, might, that might explain that phenomenon of never remembering anybody's name at, <laughs> in, a, in yeah, events like this. Distracted. That's right. Because when you learn something new, you know, it comes into this little platform we call working memory. It's, it's sort of, it's, Sometimes it's called part of attention. Sometimes it's kind of associated with memory. I kind of think of it as sort of the bridge between attention and long-term memory. Um, but, you know, and it's it's what we used to call short-term memory. Um, short-term memory lasts 30 seconds. If you don't do something with that information, then it just, whoop, it just goes out of your brain. You know, so either you encode it into your long-term memory or you write it down or do something like that. So I, what I'm hearing though, uh, Devin, is that your uh, salsa dancing group needs name tags, right? <laughs> oh, probably, probably. <laughs> then, then you're at least introducing it through another modality, right? So then you have, because there's, there's different types of memory, even through our different senses. The auditory memory is processed on, on a, really in your left hemisphere. Visual, we have a whole other memory system in the right hemisphere for visual memory. And, and so if you had name tags, then you would at least be using both sides of your brain to try to remember these, these folks' names. Yeah, and I think sometimes all you need is just a simple cue. Uh, to remind you of the name because you might just look at it just peek at it once and say oh yeah that's your name and then you remember it for a for a lot longer kind of like the whole uh space repetition that you might just need to see the name one more time later in the day and then that's likely going to extend how long you memorize uh, someone's name for yeah, exactly. Different trials, right? Especially as we get older, we need to expose ourselves to information um, more frequently. Like we need more trials to actually remember something than we did when we were when we were twenty. Yes, I see. Well, this is pretty pretty helpful. I think I've learned a lot of useful strategies for myself. So this will cover the strategies pretty well. Uh, there are actually a few more in the book, uh, but again, I highly recommend getting the book. It's one of my. I think it's probably the best. No, it, it is the best neuroscience of memory book I've read. I've read a lot of topics on, read, read a lot of books on this topic. Uh, this is one of the best explained while also being true and accurate to the science. It's not, it's not all pop science-y. Uh, so I think she did a great job there. So again, I highly recommend the book. Uh, now, one thing I want to transition to uh, is uh, what you're working on now. Uh, can you tell me about your uh, the center for Center for Wellness, right? Yeah, the Centers for Cognitive Wellness. Centers for Cognitive Wellness. Can you tell me about uh, what you guys do and uh, yeah. what your mission is? Yeah, so I've, I've been at this labor of love uh, for about the same amount of time that I've been a brain health expert. And um, we're actually going to celebrate our 10th year of being in business this fall. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, it's very exciting. And uh, we just rebranded. We've been the Chicago Center for Cognitive Wellness, uh, but we're now the Centers for Cognitive Wellness because we're opening fresh. Uh, we're open. We've just opened our doors for a location in the Washington, D.C. area. So in Bethesda, Maryland. And so I started this clinical practice. We're a group of mental health providers at really every level of the, the mental health professional range. Um, I have psychologists, 
students all the way down to counseling students and social workers and counselors in between. And um, I started this practice to really try to fill a treatment gap for people who have been diagnosed with some sort of cognitive decline. Uh, focusing on adults because, you know, there's a lot of services out there for kids with learning disabilities and, um, you know, learning delays and those sorts of things. But, but for adults, you know, I came up through the training pipeline of clinical neuropsychology, which is, you know, a field that's been around for a little over a century and um, <clears throat> which, but all it focuses on is kind of telling you what's wrong with your brain. It'll give you some recommendations, uh, neuropsychologists will, for kind of what to do about it a little bit. But there aren't a lot of practices like mine that are out there that are really going to like hold your hand as you try to implement a lot of those recommendations. And so, um, so what we do kind of, I would say at its fundamental level is psychotherapy. Uh, I'm starting to call it neurologically informed psychotherapy. So I really expect all of the therapists in the practice to allow us senior folks in the practice to educate them on what different neurological conditions are like. I don't want my patients to have to explain what Parkinson's disease is or what Alzheimer's disease is. I want my therapists to really understand a lot of the neurobiology and, and kind of be with them as they start to try to implement new behaviors, new coping styles, um, those sorts of things. And then we'll also sprinkle in some of these, what we call compensatory cognitive rehabilitation strategies. So we'll work through the therapy session to help them learn about their brains, to start writing things down, to use a calendar more effectively, um, any kind of intervention that's really gonna help support them in either increasing their functional independence or maybe trying to maintain their independence as long as possible if, if they're kind of in a progressive dementia something like that. We also see a lot of people who uh, have, we, we also see a lot of people who have what we are starting to call functional cognitive disorders. Um, these are people who are like super worried about their brain. And even when we tell them that their brain seems to be fine based off of testing, uh, they're not really convinced of that. And, and we think that actually about one out of every four person Four people, one out of every four people who goes to a memory disorders clinic to get their memory checked probably has this condition. So it's actually pretty prevalent. And, and so we work with them to try to help them kind of get control of their symptoms so that they can really try to just be more effective uh, day to day and maybe just worry about their memory a little less because it seems like the worry is probably what's getting in the way more than any type of memory glitch. I see. Well, very cool. It sounds like very interesting and meaningful work. And also, I mean, based on what you're telling me, it seems like you've got a very good strategy, both uh, for your patients and also for your clinicians. So I'm not sure where the, where the strong strategy skills came from. So uh, good job <laughs> on that as well. Thank you. Now that transitions to uh, one of my last questions. Now, a lot of people that follow me uh, or that know me in my network, uh, they're neuroscience or they're psychology or cognitive science students. Uh, do you have any recommendations for the current student in any, in any of those uh, fields? Yeah, um, go to bed <laughs> at night, right? Um, I, uh, I, 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 love, I love talking to students. I, I really, I mean, like, I could probably, you know, um, 
spend all of my time uh, mentoring students and kind of just being with them because uh, I, I, you know, I, I think fondly about those years of my life, right? And, you know, I learned about cognitive reserve in graduate school pretty early on. And, and I always remember thinking, okay, well, I'm getting a PhD. So I'm making, you know, huge investments on my intellectual arm of, of kind of brain stimulation, um, but not really paying attention to how much of my brain I probably donated to the ethos through like poor stress management, poor sleep function, oh, yeah. uh, lack of exercise, uh, those sorts of things. And so, um, so that's probably my number one. The other thing is to, um, I really, the, I, we're getting better at this with uh, some different programs where um, the Northwestern University many years ago started what they call the buddy program, where they took first year medical students and buddy them up with a person living with Alzheimer's disease. And, and they just get together a couple every, you know, like every month or so and just hang out so that you can kind of get to know a person with cognitive decline outside of sort of that clinical office, 15 minute office visit type of setting. And, um, you know, I highly recommend that. I, I think, you know, spend as much time as you can with people with cognitive declines so that you can really start to round out some of those human elements of like, what is it like to be with a person with cognitive decline? Because we're all people. And, and so, uh, and, and I, I like for professionals to really be able to kind of, you know, attach and, and connect to sort of that human element. And it'll make you a lot better at your job. I see. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I, I think I benefited from that just now, uh, learning all these things and strategies from you. So I found this awesome. I got a lot of value out of it. I think a lot of other people uh, will as well. So uh, to wrap things up, uh, Dr. All, where can we find you? And we know you're in Chicago, right? But let's say uh, we want to follow you online or uh, see what you're up to online. Where can we find you? Yeah, I mean, this actually might be my first appearance on TikTok. I, oh. Uh, oh, yeah. So... <laughs> So we're not on TikTok yet. Um, I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn and uh, a, a small following on Instagram. And um, and so I think you can just find my personal profile or uh, the uh, Centers for Cognitive Wellness, but you can go to our websites. Uh, so the clinic is cogwellness.com. So, um, so if you're in the Maryland or, or kind of the DC area or the Chicago area and you want to work with our clinical team, then you can find us there. You can also call us at 855-COGWELL. Um, or, or go to cogwellness.com. If you want to connect with me as a speaker, author, because um, I do travel around and uh, give a lot of memory presentations, you can see my talk topics and my CEU programs at sherryall.com. I see. Cool. Because I was going to ask about what's next for you. So you cover that pretty well. So pretty exciting yeah. stuff. We're just trying to grow the practice and, and uh, treat as many people as we can and really try to spread the good news of cognitive reserve and, um, and also just early detection and diagnosis of any kind of memory declines, because there's a lot that we can do to intervene and, and really make a difference for people as they're getting older. It's not, it's not all downhill from, from college. <laughs> That's good. Good to hear. <laughs> Okay. Well, uh, thank you again for doing this. This was awesome. I think a ton of people will be benefit from it. Uh, so thank you for this. And I think that wraps things up. So thank you very much, Dr. All. All right. Thanks a lot, Devin. Thank you so much for having yeah. me. Thank you and goodbye.